Tonight we're, we're approaching the, the fourth study in a series on how to recognize God's voice. And, and I wanted to start tonight by sharing with you something that had happened a few years ago um, that I wrote um, just over three years ago. Before I came to win, I was uh, serving as interim pastor of a church in Monticello, and, and so I, I wrote down this um, in my journal as a way of capturing what happened. And whenever the Lord speaks to me, I try to take time to write it down, and I try to keep notes of, about what God is doing, uh, not only in my life, but also at Wind Baptist Church. And I try to jot down some of the neat things that God is doing and remarkable things that, you know, all you can do is say that was the Lord. Um, on May 22nd, 2011, I was driving to Monticello, Arkansas to speak in the morning services at First Baptist Church, where I'd been serving as an interim pastor for over a year. Each week I prepared sermon notes, a fill-in-the-blank listening guide for the bulletin, and an accompanying slide presentation. That's kind of what we do here. I usually emailed the handout to the church office by Thursday, enjoying the creative exercise. I prepared the slides on Saturday morning. I don't do that here. We have better, better folks capable that do that here. And all week long, I reflected on what I could use as a creative element to help burn in the truth of God's Word, something to make it memorable. Hours are involved. And and so, naturally, when you get ready to speak or teach in Sunday school or whatever the occasion is, you, you should have a sense that you can't do that assignment apart from the help of the Holy Spirit. And so, there's a sense of, of His enablement. There's different words that we use. We use anointing that you ask God for. Uh, unction was what our, our old-timers used to use. But what you're looking for is that special thing that God does where He takes his word, and he applies it to people's hearts. Well, he's also equally involved in the preparation. So typically when I prepare and study anything like 15 to 20 hours a week for Sunday morning alone, that that, that process is bathed in the same desire that God is present, he is working and guiding. So I, I was doing that. Well, on the road, uh, something happened. And at that point, I lived a few hours away from Monticello. And um, on the road... Uh, I said to the Lord, am I getting this right? I'm about to speak to a group of people and you are changing the message? Where is God in the process? I normally pray about what I'm going to preach. I listen for his direction and usually feel a sense of oughtness as I set a course for the preaching schedule. It is common for me to drive around the church property on Sunday mornings, and I do it here. Call it prayer driving, but I'm typically asking the Lord to come to drive away every wrong spirit and distraction and to draw everyone to the church that needs to be there on that day. Consequently, during that particular morning drive in May 2011, I felt good about my readiness for the day until the thoughts came about 80 miles from Monticello and put thoughts in bold ink. The thoughts I knew I didn't initiate, thoughts I recognized as coming from him, Thoughts about a different message to be shared that morning. I love creativity, but divine spontaneity is a little scary. 
The message came quickly and clearly. I grabbed a notepad and set it on the armrest and scribbling while keeping my eyes on the road, and I really did. I jotted down an outline uh, that I knew he wanted me to preach. God used it. He spoke to his people that day. But sometimes guidance comes that way, his thoughts that he brings to mind. Walking with God requires me to be prepared to listen to him when he speaks, and in different ways he speaks. One of the defining characteristics of the earliest Christ followers in the book of Acts was their readiness to change course when the Holy Spirit spoke. Acts 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go up and join this chariot. Acts 10, 19, while Peter was reflecting on the vision, the Spirit said to him, behold, three men are looking for you. Acts 13, 2, while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart from me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. The men and I looked at that this past Thursday morning. At 16, 6 through 7, they passed through the Phrygian and Galatian region, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And after they came to Missy, they were trying to go in Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. The Lord gives clear and specific guidance to his people. My need for that kind of direction continues today. More than dutiful obedience, this way of walking with God captures the essence of my relationship to him. I am dependent on him for everything. In the absence of such unexpected direction, I have a mind, and I have the God-breathed direction of the Bible. Those precious resources are a primary and sufficient mechanism for receiving direction from God. There are other times, however, when he is clearly speaking to me in a way that supersedes my logic and reason without contradicting the written word of God. I believe we must learn to recognize and become sensitive to his voice whenever and wherever he speaks. As we go to our fifth marker of God's voice tonight, I want you to think about what I shared about that particular experience in light of what we have already studied. We have said that when God speaks, his voice is marked by initiative. He, he makes the first move. The sheep who are gathered in a pen, as we're, and I'll reread the text in a moment, in John chapter 10, the sheep who are gathered in the pen, they can't leave until the shepherd takes the initiative to come. He makes the first move. In that case, yes, I was praying. Yes, I was open to whatever the Lord might say to me that morning, but I certainly did not anticipate that the thoughts that came to mind would be a sermon that would do away with everything I had prepared that week. Clarity. When he speaks, we know it's him. And we can muddy it up with hindrances, and we've talked about that when we studied. Uh, not being born again is certainly a hindrance. Not being obedient to what you know, and then expecting God to keep talking to you. Not being obedient to what you know. Not being able to focus on what God is saying. Being so busy, so much noise in your life that you can't hear him. Clarity. Third principle we've studied is intimacy. It says he calls his own sheep by name, we saw in verse 3 of John 10. He speaks to us, typically in the scripture, by name. He knows who you are. And we focused last week on, on that. That when that voice comes, when those thoughts often come as thoughts that come to your mind, you recognize that there is someone here who knows you better than you know yourself. And there's a warmth and a love and an affection associated with that that comes through when he speaks. Tonight, we're going to look at the fourth characteristic of the voice of God and that is purpose. Purpose is number four. Let me begin tonight by reading the scripture passage that has been 
the focus of our study. John chapter 10, verses 1, 2, and 3. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs up some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. In verse 27, Jesus adds, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And again, just very quickly, by way of review, the word picture that Jesus is using was very familiar to the people of that time. Shepherds spent the entire life cycle of the sheep with the sheep. And so from birth, that shepherd was the one who cared for them and saw to it that they were well-fed, well-watered, and, and that their needs were met, they were protected from wolves, and so forth. And so at night, what he would do is typically put them in a pen. That pen could have been uh, just the side of a cliff with some sticks piled up around it, so they would kind of be in one place. If he was by himself, he would literally sleep in the opening of that pen. If there were several shepherds together and they had maybe a, a better setup, they might put all their sheep in there together. They had no problem with that because in the morning, the shepherd would come to that opening and he would call those sheep by name. And we've seen that. And as he called them by name, his sheep would come. The other sheep would cower in fear and back away from the opening. They didn't know his voice. And, and so that was the analogy that Jesus was using. When we come to um, this last part of verse 3, it says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. The shepherd leads them out. And so there's a purpose in the mind of the shepherd when he calls them out of where they are. The shepherd leads them out because he's taking them somewhere. He is not leaving them where they are. And he has a purpose in mind when he speaks. And you need to notice that all that the sheep get to do at this moment is do the next thing that the shepherd says to do. They don't know where they're going. They don't know what this particular journey is going to be about. All that they know is that the shepherd has called them and that they are to follow him. There is no road map, at least not for the sheep. There's no announcement of a final destination. He's going to lead them to a specific place and to a specific activity that he has in mind step by step and not all at once. And that's our experience, those of us as we have walked with God, some of you for many, many years, more than I have, as we walk with God, our experience is God leads us step by step by step. He doesn't tell us the whole map at once. And so we are always in a place where we have to depend on him. And we have to be sensitive to his leading. In the book Experiencing God by Henry Blackaby, which I, I recommend, if you've never taken the class, I recommend you get the trade book by that same name, Experiencing God. And in it, he talks about seven realities of experiencing God. And, um, and what I'm sharing tonight is based, although it's in my own words, is this particular segment on purpose is based on what he describes as a, the content of what God says when he speaks to you and me. And so I want to go through these one by one. I've restated them. One of God's purposes for speaking, there are three main purposes one of those purposes is this. He wants to expand your knowledge of who he is. 
So much of the time, you and I come to God because we're trying to make a decision. But he comes to us because he wants you to know him. He wants you to know him as well as he knows you. He wants you to be intimate with him. So God wants you to know him, and he will often reveal who he is and then put you in a situation where he calls you to experience that part of who he is. So if you're studying about him, uh, some aspect of who he is, I know some of y'all are involved in Bible studies on Wednesday nights and, and you're looking at different topics. When you're studying about God, expect that he's going to take what you're learning and put you in a situation to where what you're learning about God is what you experience of him in your actual life, your day-to-day life. He makes it real. That happens to you and me in our time alone with God when we're reading the Scripture on a daily basis. The thing that you're reading becomes the thing that you wind up sharing with someone else or that God brings to your mind and reminds you of later in the week when something happens to you and what you're reading uh, helps you understand what's happening at that very moment. And so he does that. He wants you to know who he is. In the Old Testament, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, I am God Almighty in Genesis 17. First words out of his mouth, I am God Almighty. What is he wanting Abraham to know about him? That he's God Almighty. The Lord spoke to Moses in Leviticus 19, speak to the entire Israelite community and tell them, be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Again, he's wanting them to know something about who he is. Now, in the New Testament, it's very similar, but also radically different. Because God, in the most ultimate way imaginable, reveals who he is by doing what? He sends Jesus to reveal to us who he is. The later writers would say, if you want to know who God is, look at Jesus, the Son of God. He is the spitting image of the Father. He's the representative of God. He is is the image of God. He is everything you need to know about God. Look at Jesus. He is God's perfect revelation of himself. But that's not all that takes place because Jesus teaches us about who God is. And do you know the number one way that Jesus describes God? And this is radically different than the Old Testament. The number one way that Jesus describes God is as Father, Father. Tonight, as I was getting ready for this, he brought something to mind. And it's always interesting how when you study about recognizing God's voice that he speaks to you about what he wants you to share. (laughs) And I don't don't particularly enjoy sharing this, but I need to share this. When, um, when Gail and I lived out west, we, in our family, began. You know, we have six children. They're all about two years apart, exactly two years apart, actually. And the last two are six years apart. So it's easy to remember their birthdays because they're all even-numbered years. In fact, I think Gail kind of hated to see the even-numbered years come around during that time period. Our first one... Uh, Rachel, who's, who's here tonight, uh, she was born in uh, 1984. And when she was born, I became a father for the first time. And for me, that was particularly significant because my growing up had had some 
some bumps when it came to experiencing what a father is. Uh, my birth father left when I was very young, about five, six years old, and after age seven, I never saw him again or had contact with him till my late 20s. And I was adopted when my mother remarried. And so when I became a father, one of my natural things that happens to you is that you think, well, I would think that my birth father would want to know about this. Well, I don't know where he is. So I found him, tracked him down when I was 27. And over the years, we forged a relationship. It was not, um, you know, an ideal thing, but we forged a relationship. And then he passed away a couple years ago. When, uh, when I was going through this process of becoming a father, the experience of my childhood uh, began to affect my relationship, or I began to see how my experience as a child was affecting my relationship with God. And some of you may have had that kind of experience, and you may still be having that kind of experience. I wrestled uh, tremendously with, and I had been learning about the fatherhood of God, by the way, I had been studying about the fatherhood of God when I became a father. And I just told you that when you begin to learn something about who God is, he typically puts you in a situation where that truth becomes a reality in your own experience. And um, the year after Rachel was born, I had to travel more by airplane in that year than I have ever had to travel my whole life. Uh, I was on a plane all the time going somewhere in my work with what was called the Home Mission Board um, at that time. And so I had grown up in the Air Force. We flew everywhere when I was a kid. I was always had my nose plastered to the window, watching takeoffs and landings and watching the little clouds down below as we flew overseas and flew different places when I was a kid. And so I, I particularly enjoyed flying until I became a father, and suddenly I really didn't like to fly anymore. In fact, for some unexplained reason at the time, I dreaded it. If I knew I had to fly, I couldn't sleep. It, it, was, it was an irrational fear that became bigger and bigger in my own mind and heart and just became like a monster. And I took it to the Lord over and over again. I said, Lord, what is this? Uh, this doesn't make any sense. I don't understand this. And then as I continued to, to lay it before the Lord, he began to, to show me some things about who he is, some things that I had doubted, some things that I was believing about him in my heart, even though with my head I knew better. For example, I had taken my experience with my earthly father and I had projected it onto God. For example... I thought with the mind of a five-year-old, six-year-old, if I had been good enough, he would have wanted me. If I had been worthy, he wouldn't have left. And I saw that sometimes my overachievement, my tendency to work too much, went back to this trying to prove myself being good enough, worthy enough. I would read verses in my 20s like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world 
And I would think, that's nice. I wish that was true of me. I call that now, I use the word exceptionalism, because when you are struggling with that hangover of what happened to you, and you begin putting that off on God, when you struggle with that kind of thing, you become the exception to everything you read in Scripture about God. The truth is, I was thinking that God loves the whole world except me. I cannot trust God to take care of me. And he'll drop me. He'll drop me. Then he began to show me who he is in his word again. He put me in situations like this flying thing where I had no choice. I don't know if you know it or not, but 1985 was the worst year in American aviation history. I really think that's still true. There were planes going down every other week, and I was having to fly. And so it wasn't just a help me Jesus prayer when I got on a plane. It was, I don't want to be here. Lady, can you give me something? Knock me out. (laughs) You know, A-team was popular back then. I want to be like Mr. T, just wake me up when it's over. I had no choice but to trust him. I can remember times where I would sit back in my seat when we would get ready to take off and, and I would read about the disciples who are in the storm in the boat and the wind is blowing and everything is awful and terrible and they thought they were going to die. But Jesus was asleep in the hull. And I remember we used to sitting back when the plane would go up and we'd be flying. You know, I never got the nice smooth flights. I got the ones where your stomach went up into your throat. And, and when that was happening, I remember sitting back and, and I had been meditating on Psalm 27. The Lord, is, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Just memorize the whole thing and meditated on that. And I remember I would sit back and say, Lord Jesus, I want to sleep on this plane the way you slept in that boat. And constantly having to work through that process so that I could do the ministry things that I knew I had to do. I didn't have a choice. But at the same time, learn about God, what he wanted me to learn in the circumstance that I was experiencing. And so God put his word in my life. He put some men in my life who loved me, cared for me, prayed for me, and helped model for me what it is to trust the Lord. I've mentioned him before. One of those is Bob Tremaine. I remember one time we had a flight. We were going to San Francisco, and he was riding with me. And you have to, I just wish all of y'all could have known him. Bob was about six foot seven, weighed 250 pounds, and had a, had a bass voice. And you didn't, you didn't mess with him. And you felt really safe around him. And I remember one time we were riding, riding a plane, we were cut, cut a flight from L.A. to San Francisco for some meetings, and, we, and he's riding by the window. I didn't want anything to do with the window. And we're on the plane, we're getting ready to take off, and he says, are you okay? I think it was the white look on my face, just all the blood draining from my face. He said, are you okay? I said, sure, I'm fine. <laughs> he said, what's wrong? I said, Bob, it really bothers me to fly. He said, you don't think we're going to make it to San Francisco? And I said, who knows? God knows. He said, well, listen. He said, we're going to San Francisco. It's not my time yet. I said, but what about me? (laughs) (laughs) On the return flight, we had a guy riding with us who uh, had been a gambler 
in Las Vegas, a high-stakes poker player. I've talked about him before. His name was Rick Hamill. And Rick and I were on the plane together. It was one of those long PSA flights at the time that had no divisions. It was just a one big bus, as long as you could see. And we were about two-thirds of the way back, and you could see all the way to the front to the cockpit door. And Rick sits beside me, and he says, are you okay, Don? And he saw the same thing. I said, Rick, I just really don't like to fly. And I thought this guy knew in Christ he would understand that, you know, trust in the Lord. He said, well, gee, Don, I'm sorry to hear about that. But he said, let me tell you something. In the history of aviation, no plane that's ever gone up has ever failed to come back down. <laughs> How's that for encouragement? When my two years were up with, with Tremaine, we were scheduled to leave and, and move on, but as those two years were coming to a close, Gail and I recognized that God had put us in a place where we could learn a great deal about ministry and about walking with God. And uh, the Lord told me to stay with Bob, and we stayed with him two more years, and I learned all that I could from him. He helped me know God and to trust him in ways that I had not learned before that time. To this day, my time alone with God with him, is often God speaking and showing me something about who he is. And so about one and a half weeks ago, let me just give you an example. You're reading the word, and God begins to show you something. And I want you to see this on the screen. This is Psalm 18, verse 2. Go ahead and pull that up. Um, the Lord is, and there's about seven things that God is. Do you see that? The Lord is what? He's first my rock, and then he's my fortress, and then he's my deliverer, and then he's my God, and then he is my rock in whom I take refuge, and then he is my shield and the horn of my salvation, and then he is my stronghold. Seven things that he is that's mine. And so God spoke to me at that moment through that particular psalm. And so God speaking to you and me is not always about take job A, B, marry this person, don't marry this person, you know, whatever. He speaks to us. One of the great purposes for which he speaks to you and me is so that you and I would know him and get to know him better. So when God speaks, it's with a purpose. He wants to expand your knowledge of who he is. But there's a second purpose. He wants you to know what he is doing. He wants you to know what he is doing. Uh, typically, he gives you direction, and it requires faith to act on it. One of my favorite verses in this regard is Romans 10, 17. The Bible says, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And I went ahead and put the transliteration, the Greek word up there. Rhema is the word translated word, and it means utterance or spoken word. So faith, if I want to grow in my faith, I need to hear God. That's how we grow in our faith. Well, naturally, I need to read Scripture because God speaks through Scripture. But uh, I may be reading through a section of Scripture. I may not be particularly impressed that God is saying something to me about something in my life. But at some point, I'm going to read along in there. And just like Psalm 18, God's going to speak. And it's going to meet a need in my heart. He's going to reveal something to me about himself. But I can't trust God to do what I want him to do. I can only trust God for what he has said he will do. So faith always has an object. It's not, about, it's not about me believing God and somehow wrestling from God something that I want because I'm exercising faith. No. 
It's that God has said in His Word or to your heart, I'm going to do something, and then you can have faith. That's why faith comes by hearing and hearing by the utterance of the spoken Word of God. He speaks, then I can trust Him. He says something, and then I can exercise faith. So four things, quickly. I cannot trust God until He speaks. I cannot trust God until He speaks. He has to speak first. Secondly, I must trust God after he speaks. When he does speak, I've got to trust him. Because part of his purpose is that I would know what he's doing. And so I've got to trust him at that moment. Thirdly, I must not fill in the gaps in my understanding. Because he doesn't give me the whole roadmap and often doesn't give me the, the final destination, our human tendency is to try to fill in the gaps. Well, he's saying to go here, so that must mean, and we try to fill in the, the gaps, the blanks. Don't do that. Don't do that. Um, I've shared before about um, different moves that we've had in life. And I remember one move we made to Lake Charles, Louisiana. I thought I was going there to start a new church. And I don't have time to tell that entire story. But we, we heard the Lord say, go to Lake Charles. And so we went. And we did get involved in a new church plant. I was pastoring a new church start. And it did grow initially. But it came to a place where we realized that this thing was a misfire, and that happens sometimes in planning new churches. And we shut it down. Didn't have anywhere else to go. And so God clearly said go to Lake Charles, Louisiana in 1991. We go to Lake Charles, Louisiana in 1991, and by 19, middle of 1992, we don't have anywhere else to go, don't have a job, don't have direction. I thought it was to start a new church. Not having anywhere else to go, we settled our family into a First Baptist Church of Lake Charles. The pastor there at the time was a man named Emil Turner. Emil Turner and I became fast friends. After a few months, he asked me to come on staff part-time and then eventually full-time. And we had, in the five years that we were part of that church, the most remarkable season of God's favor that I've ever experienced in a church. We saw the church double in size, go from about 500 in Bible study to nearly 1,000. We saw people literally walk the aisle every week. We were baptizing 60 to 80 a year. The last year I was there, we baptized 220. And, and we saw prayer ministry with people in a prayer setting seven days a week, spending hours before the Lord praying and seeking his face for the church and for God's pleasure. And, and it was just a remarkable period of time. I thought I was going to Lake Charles to start a church. And I had been in Southern California where everybody's cool. And I thought, you know, a traditional downtown church in South Louisiana, you know, I don't think I'm going to be a fit. And yet I walk in the doors of this traditional downtown church and there was a supernatural heat the moment you walked in the door. You could just sense God was working. And God said, I can do what I want to do anytime, place, Pusick. You don't know as much as you think you do. And so while God was working in us and through us, he was teaching me stuff, things I needed to know about how he works in a church. Years later, Dr. Turner came up here to be the executive director for Arkansas Baptist. He said, Don, someday we're going to work together again. It took him eight years to fulfill that promise. And then he finally invited us to join him 
uh, 12 years ago um, as his associate executive director. I thought I was going to Lake Charles to start a church. Don't fill the gaps in. When God speaks, be satisfied to do the next thing he says to do. Let him fill in the blanks for you. And it'll be a lot easier on the heart. And uh, I can speak from several instances of that. Let me give you an example from the Gospels, and we may not get done tonight. That's okay with the outline. Let me give you an example from the Gospels. Oh, let me, the fourth bullet. I must not be surprised if my faith is tested. Mine was. Let me give you this example. Luke chapter 8, verse 22. It'll be on the screen. Now watch this carefully. Now it happened on a certain day that he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us cross over to the other side of the lake. Do you see those words italicized? Let us cross over to the other side of the lake. And they launched out. But as they sailed, he fell asleep. This is the good part. And a windstorm came down the lake, and they were filling with water and were in jeopardy. And they came to him and awoke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. Then he arose and rebuked the wind and the raging of the water, and they ceased, and there was a calm. But he said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid and marveled, saying to one another, Who can this be? For he commands even the winds and water, and they obey him. And I told you, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. So I can't exercise faith in the absence of God's word. I can't just make up what to trust God for. There has to be something. Now, what did Jesus tell the disciples they were going to do? What was the word from God? We are going to the other side of the lake. Now, he didn't say if they were going to go on the water, under the water, walking on the water. He didn't tell them how they were going to do it. But, but goodness, if God says we're going to the other side of the lake, you can take it home and count on it. That's what's going to happen. Did they think they were going to make it to the other side of the lake? <laughs> no. That's why Jesus said, where's your faith? Where's your faith? I told you we were going to the other side of the lake. That's why I was asleep. No problem. We're going to the other side of the lake. Jesus is asleep. Just hang on, boys. Some of you right now may need to hang on. Maybe you're in the midst of a storm. What's the last thing God said to you? What's the promise that he made to you? Would you, friend, go back there as your anchor and lay hold of that promise. That's what you need right now. When God speaks, it's with a purpose. He wants to expand your knowledge of who he is. He wants you to know what he is doing. And the final purpose for speaking is this. He wants you to know and apply his ways instead of your ways. He wants you to know and apply his ways instead of your ways. God says in Isaiah 55, 8, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. We're never going to carry out God's plan that he reveals to us in our own human ingenuity and with our own methods and our own strategies. He has a way to do everything that he tells you to do. And so we want to discover his ways, and he, he speaks to you so that you can learn his ways. Uh, one of the basic sin problems that we face is found in Isaiah 53, 6. It says, we all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way. So what is man's way? Um, let me give you uh, a couple of examples, and then we're going to close. 
Proverbs 25, verses 21 to 22. If your enemy is hungry, now don't read any further. If your enemy is hungry, what is the normally accepted way to handle that situation in our world? Forget the Bible. If your enemy is hungry, what should you do? What's that? Yeah, let him starve, baby. <laughs> let him have it. And, and, and that's the, the way of the world. Now, you and I have been around church long enough that we know better than that. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to drink. If he's thirsty, give him water to drink. For so you will heap coals of fire on his head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, we know that we should be kind to our enemies. We know that. But how many other ways of the world are in your head that you may not be as alert to? Are you tracking with me? There is, there is so much that, that lives in our head that we would call, put under the heading, ways of the world that we're not conscious of. And so I desperately need to hear from God so that stuff gets filtered out. If God says, go pick up your family and move to um, the middle of Indiana, and if he tells you to do that, God bless you. You don't want to just go without understanding, Lord, how do you want us to do that? You may not have the money to move. You may not have the resources to do what God is telling you to do. And so he has a way to address that that is specific and clear for that assignment. Let me give you another example. Um, I'm going to skip, if you're running the slides, I'm skipping the second one. Go to Proverbs 14.12. Proverbs 14.12. I want to I put two verses together, and, and listen to this carefully. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Now that's sobering, isn't it? Now here's a second verse, Psalm 37, 4 and 5. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. So on one hand, there's a way that seems right to a man, the end of its death. On the other hand, he says, commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord, and he shall bring it to pass. So my question to you is this, what is man's way? What is man's way in general? What does it produce? There's a way that seems right to a man, but the end thereof is what? Death. Death. Physical death, perhaps. But death means a lot of things in the Scripture. Death always describes separation of one thing from another. It could be there's a way that seems right to a man, the end thereof is death. It can mean that you move further away from God. What a tragedy it might be that you and I would invest our whole life in doing what we think is what God wants, only to discover that we have not yet begun to do what God wants with our life. He says, commit your way to the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord and take all of your ways, commit them to him. It's the only way to live. It's the only way to have life. When God speaks to you, 
It's always for a purpose. Let me ask you to bow your heads and to close your eyes. As God has spoken and stirred your heart tonight, what has He said? If you've never trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you're trying to live your life in your own strength, trying to be a good person, and you realize tonight that salvation is something that God gives as a gift to those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. When we stand and sing in just a moment, if you want to be saved, you want to put your trust in Christ as your Savior and Lord, I'm going to ask you to get up out of the pew and to come and take one of these pastors by the hand and say, I want to trust Christ. I want that new life the pastor's been talking about today. And then you may be faced, if you're a Christian tonight, you may be faced with a decision. And you're trying to sort it out. Is this of the Lord or is it not of the Lord? Maybe you just want someone to pray with you about that. These pastors are here. They'll do that. You may need to come and just kneel at the altar. Say, oh God, just help me sort this out. Father, I want to hear your voice and I don't want to make a mistake. I want to know what you want me to do. Commit your way to the Lord. Commit your way to the Lord. Maybe you know someone who's struggling with a decision. Maybe you know someone who's just trying to discover the, the reality of God's presence in their life. They, they've trusted Christ. They've been saved, but they just don't feel the love of God. And maybe you're in the position I was in in my 20s. Well, I just wasn't exactly sure that the love of God applied to me. Maybe you can stand when we sing and you just bow your head and say, Oh, God. Oh, God, take me from where I am to the place where you want me to be. Lead me with purpose. Bring me to the place where I know you the way you want me to know you. Pastors are here. We'll pray with you. The altar steps are open. You can pray alone or with a friend. How's God leading you? Father, thank you that you care. Thank you that you don't leave us where we are. Thank you that when you speak to us, You're taking us from where we are to where you want us to be. For that person hearing your voice right now, that person who senses that through their thoughts and the things that they're hearing that you are speaking, would you encourage them tonight? Would you fill their heart with joy because they're hearing the very voice of God? And as we respond to you now, may our the orientation, the attitude of our heart, may it bring you pleasure as we stand and sing.